Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anil Polat. How does this sound? I mean, like, literally, how does this sound? I'm recording this on a new microphone. If you haven't seen, that review is up on YouTube. It is an upgraded version of the microphone I had been using previously, but this microphone is not just for podcasts. You can use this microphone if you do a lot of conferencing from home, which I think a lot of us have been over the last year, take a lot of meetings. You know, most people's, their audio sucks. Even if you use headphones, which is better than, you know, not using headphones at all. But if you really want to sound good, you want a good microphone. And this is not an ad or anything. This is just a product that I really like and I really use. And they're very durable. They're not too big in terms of a microphone. And they're just excellent. You get good sound quality, all those things. So they make a good travel microphone, good microphone for home. This is the Audio-Technica ATR2100X USB. That video, my full review is up on YouTube if you want to check it out. Um, And if you want links to it, just tweet at me and I will send you a link to this microphone. Anyway, uh, some other things that have happened since the last episode, since the last time we talked, what's going on? Uh, Aside from this review, I also reviewed the Ridge Wallet, which is a slim, super slim wallet made of titanium. It is wallet shopping season i think a lot of people are shopping for father's day but you can use slim wallet if you're male or female it doesn't really doesn't really matter believe me when you go to a slim wallet when you switch over it's really hard to go back to like a full-size wallet trust me i've made the change um i'm on i'm on team slim wallet so they're definitely not only a lot more convenient for daily use but when you're traveling it's also less stuff in your pocket less stuff you have to carry All of that is great. So with all that said, one last thing I just want to let you know about is I issued an apology on my site. If you want to read that, read what that apology is about. It is on the blog right now, foxnomad.com slash blog. If you want to check it out, hear my apology to, um, to a thing that I think most of us or a lot of us have to apologize to. So check that out on the site. But now, now I have a great episode for you today. I'm very excited. My guest today is Dr. Jack Stuster, who is a cultural anthropologist, but he is really described as a space anthropologist. It's just an amazing story, and the work is just really interesting as well. Combining two of the things that I love, anthropology and science and space. And here you go. I'm going to just read you a little bit of the work that Dr. Stuster has worked on. He has analyzed the tasks performed by the U.S. Navy SEALs, SDV pilots and navigators, EOD technicians, LCAC crews, special operators, maintenance personnel, and military leaders. The results of his research are used to design selection methods, training equipment, and procedures to facilitate task performance under conditions of unusual environmental or psychological stress. Dr. Stuster recently completed a study for DARPA that identified the factors that contribute to survival and casualties during firefights and contributed to the development of a training program for the Expedition Corps, astronauts selected for long-duration space missions. Now, since 2003, he has analyzed confidential journals that are maintained for this purpose by astronauts during their six-month tours of duty on board the International Space Station, and he is currently conducting a task analysis for the first human expedition to mars now that is a ton of stuff if i'm gonna give you the nutshell we get all into it in the interview but if i was gonna give you a nutshell and say 
what we talk about, we, we focus a lot about his, his work with NASA and, and what, you know, engineers design space stations, but you need an anthropologist to tell you how people are actually going to live in those conditions. What are some of the things that make, you know, orbiting around the earth more livable for a, a human being, which, you know, evolved on earth was never, you know, designed to be out in space in a small metal capsule, you know, going thousands and thousands of miles an hour around our planet. That is where Dr. Stuster comes in. We talk about his career, how that became a thing. Like, what is a space anthropologist? How does one become a space anthropologist? Some of the work that he's working on now. We also talk about his book, Bold Endeavors, Lessons from Polar and Space Exploration, which talks a lot about uh those things. I think it's a very interesting read. I think you're going to enjoy this episode of the podcast very much. It's fascinating. It really gives you, I think, a good, you know, insight into why cross-pollinating different fields is really important, especially in the sciences, but, you know, mixing social sciences and, and I guess, the quote-unquote hard sciences and art. I, I think all of this comes together. I think um, we don't often see that. We often go, hey, why am I learning this thing? But, you know, cross-pollination between uh, the sciences especially, I think, comes up with some really uh, interesting and beneficial results. So without me talking any further, here's my discussion with Dr. Jack Stuster. Right, and we're we're good. I... I um wanted to thank you for being on the podcast and I just wanted to start by saying I've seen I mean you're called a space anthropologist which to me is one of the coolest job titles ever <laughs> I think it's just amazing it's it's combined it's just combines so many things that that I love um but yeah we had just started before we hit record I, I was going to ask you actually how, how does one become a space anthropologist <laughs> okay, uh, I don't know where to begin. It's like a cliche, but I, I will uh, give you some background information. I think I give you some background information. Um, I had in graduate school, I had prepared to study a group of tropical forest hunter gatherers known as the Orang Punan in uh, central Kalimantan or Indonesian Borneo. Um, they were the last group of hunter-gatherers that had yet to be uh, studied, and there was no ethnography uh, on them, and their, their territory was being encroached upon by lumber companies, Japanese and American and other uh, lumber companies, and it was just a matter of time before they were, uh, that their culture would be obliterated. I don't mean to say violently, but um, that they would lose their tropical forest hunter-gatherer ways. Um, and so I submitted proposals to the normal anthropological funding sources, primarily the Na National Institute of Mental Health, which oddly was a the, the primary uh, funder of fieldwork at that time in the 1970s. Um, but um, Richard Nixon uh, was president, and he impounded all of the funds for social science research as a way of getting back at uh, students and professors for opposing uh, the Vietnam War. And uh, so I 
submitted proposals to like Weyerhaeuser and Boise Cascade and some of the other uh, companies that had concessions in the area. No one was interested. Um, and so I came up with a, um, by the way, the only other time that uh, research funds were, or that government funds were impounded, uh, other than Richard Nixon doing this, was when Trump did it. So, but anyway, the um, I came up with a short list of topics that I could finance on my own. And one of them was to study uh, com commercial fishermen in the west coast of North America. Um, Frederick Barth, the famous Norwegian anthropologist, had just concluded a study of uh, Norwegian herring saners, and there was a group at um, Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, where they were studying uh, local Canadian fishermen. And so my committee thought this a study of West Coast commercial fishermen could be an appropriate topic. And one of the first things that I, I did was to call the Marine Science Institute at UCSB, uh, thinking that maybe a marine biologist knew a commercial fisherman, and then I would have a, you know one introduction or to get started. Um, and they he didn't know any commercial fishermen, but he asked, um, "Do you have funding for your study?" <laughs> and I explained, "No, I." I didn't. He said, hmm, we're, we're a Sea Grant University and we're under a certain amount of pressure right now to broaden our portfolio beyond marine biology. And how about if I pay you to write a proposal? And, <laughs> and so I had three months to write a proposal, uh, which was accepted. And then I had full funding for my dissertation research. Struggled for two years, learned Indonesian prepared to go to Borneo and couldn't go, and yet fell backwards into a fully funded dissertation on decision-making among commercial fishermen. And when I concluded in the uh, dissertation in 1976, there were very few teaching jobs in the South. There was some and at junior colleges, but I had prepared to be a, a university professor, I thought. And um, so I can, during my dissertation research, the Fishermen's Association asked me, you know, here's this guy hanging around the harbor a lot, uh, doesn't seem to have any enough to do. So they asked me to, uh, I mean, I explained what I was doing. And so they knew I was essentially writing a paper for the university was the, but they asked me to um, help them put together a, wholesale and retail seafood business to generate funds for their association and to provide competition uh, uh, as an outlet for their product uh, in our little city. There's a long history of collusion and price fixing in the fishing industry from, uh, from uh, multinational conglomerates to the smallest fish market. And so I put together this fish market and operated it for three years, during which time I would um, you know, buy fish, set up the fish case, then around lunchtime, head out and make deliveries to the restaurants and then go home and take a shower, an important step, and then head off to the university where I would 
stay in the library until midnight writing my dissertation. So I did this over and over till the dissertation was done. And, and then I continued doing it because there were few jobs. And a, a company in San Francisco, uh, the principals called me one day to ask some questions that they had a contract with the National Marine Fisheries Service on interfishery mobility. And I had just concluded a postdoc on that. And, and what I knew seemed like a lot to them. And I was really cocky. And I said, well, if you, after an hour, I, I said, you know, if you want more information, you're gonna have to pay for it. And they said, well, that can be arranged. <laughs> and so I met with them and they um, offered me a job. I continued, I mean, this was 1977. I continued um, in Santa Barbara uh, working for the company in San Francisco, and I would go up there at the beginning and at the ends of projects, and and um, they they liked what I did for them. Um, for example, a, a study of uh, the marketability of a soil amendment product made from the sewage sludge of Portland, Oregon, and so I interviewed over the phone and in person golf course greenskeepers and field nursery operators and um, uh, the people responsible for keeping the grass green at the Rose Bowl and other commercial users of soil amendment products and then some statistical stuff. And I put together the report and they liked it because I was able to bring together these this information from multiple sources, which is exactly what anthropologists are trained to do. We, we assemble the information from personal interviews and, and uh, more quantitative sources. And, uh, but the MBAs who they had traditionally hired didn't have that ability. And so I kind of, they liked what I did and I enjoyed doing this work too. It was hands-on anthropology but it wasn't really anthropology, but I approached it as an ethnographic issue or an ethnographic project. And I still do. I mean, all through my career, I keep a journal for each project, which is my symbolic link to anthropology, um, whether I'm interviewing, uh, whether I'm interviewing uh, fire control officers for the military or special operators or astronauts. It's all kind of a approach it, approach the uh, research as an anthropologist. After working for Gruen Gruen plus associates, um, I took a job here in Santa Barbara, uh, working on the largest environmental impact uh, report ever prepared. It was for the multiple protective shelter basing mode for missile X. This was during the uh, Jimmy Carter administration. Um, it was called the shell game. There would be 200 missiles uh, and 2000 silos spread out over Nevada and Utah. And a truck would back their horizontal missile silos. A truck would back up to one of these silos. And from a Soviet satellite, they couldn't tell whether a missile went in or a missile came out or nothing happened. And so trucks would be moving around uh, these 2000 silos and um, in a manner that would prevent the Soviet Union from ever being able to target all 200 missiles at once. 
So it was a, it only made sense, by the way, when compared to the other concepts that they had entertained and then rejected. Um, and my job was to mitigate the negative effects on Native American populations in, in the area. And we had all kinds of plans to do that. Surplus Air Force fire trucks to remote uh, Native American reservations where all the men would be off making money building this system and the, leave just women to handle their volunteer fire department um, and push the carts with the hoses and stuff. We would you know, provide them with fire trucks and job training and alcohol rehabilitation programs, guaranteed employment, all kinds of things. But anyway, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, then became president and immediately canceled that because he, he couldn't be seen um, going forward with Jimmy Carter's plan. So he had a different plan. Then I took a job with Anacapa Sciences, uh, which is was a small applied behavioral sciences and human factors engineering company. That's where I worked for 37 years. Soon after joining the company, um, Rockwell International, which had built the space shuttle and had the integration and launch control contract at um, Kennedy Space Center, it was taking months instead of weeks to refurbish the orbiter between missions. And uh, they, there were some uh, accidents uh, that would delay the uh, processing, but also there were three people killed in a uh, test on the ground. One of uh, one of the tests required uh, three people, technicians, to go in the aft section and replace some boron tubes. Well, one of the other tests um, required the area to be purged of oxygen, and so a guy went in and collapsed and another guy goes in after him and he asphyxiates and the third one and so forth. And so NASA wanted, well, anyway, Rockwell International then called Anacapa Sciences uh, and asked Doug Harris, the founder of the company to uh, come to Kennedy Space Center and troubleshoot the turnaround procedures and find out what the heck was going on that was slowing things down. And I was, be, I was the new guy on the team, uh, cheapest on the payroll, and Doug asked me to accompany him. And we spent a couple weeks uh, interviewing everyone from the director of launch operations to the people who swept the floor of the vehicle assembly building. And also looked at um, accident reports and um, a bunch of other uh, statistical information and identified 22 categories of issues that were slowing things down. For example, an engineer, it was in development still at this point, and so the shuttle was. And so an engineer would issue a change order. Uh, the engineer had never seen the actual hardware, but working from schematics had issued a change order. For example, put three straps between point A and point B. And the change order goes to other engineers, they sign off on it and they sign, and it gets to the floor of the uh, orbiter processing facility. And a technician who's been there since Mercury says, God, there's not even room for two straps, much less three. And he would try to approach the engineer to explain this. And the engineers, this was in the South, 
And engineering is hierarchical to begin with, but in the South, it's even more so. And engineer wouldn't talk to a technician, you know, have your boss contact me, go through channels. And so this change order would have to go back up through the chop chain, uh, and it took months. And there were lots of these institutional impediments to prog progress. The tile technology, the the thermal tiles that were that lined the underside of the shuttle, uh, was brand new technology. There was no um, technician base from which to draw for those uh, tasks, and so they hired off the streets of Cocoa Beach. A lot of the people, a lot of the technicians, had long hair, and the Southern uh, conservative culture that uh, populated the Southern uh, research uh, centers like Kennedy Space Center, Launch Control Center, um, they were prejudiced. And so there would be signs on a refrigerator, no tile pukes allowed. And, you know, there was just this divisive behavior. And uh, so anyway, we, we wrote our report and uh, then gave our presentation to Rockwell Management in Downey, California. And uh, they appreciated it and they implemented some of the, uh, our recommendations. We later learned that many of the uh, recommendations did in fact contribute to improved performance. Performance would have improved anyway because they were on a, a learning curve, but we were told that a lot of the things uh, that were implemented really did help. We also learned that they didn't expect recommendations for changing the way they did business. They thought that our product was going to be some sort of motivational poster, you know, like do a good job, don't drop those wrenches or, or something. Um, but anyway, at our last presentation, I noticed a sign on a door that said Space Station Working Group. And I thought, wow, this is my ticket to remain involved. On our very first day at Kennedy Space Center, the director of launch operations asked us, well, where do you want to begin? And we said, well, the launch pad, of course. And so our escort took us out to the launch pad. We went up the, the uh, gantry in an elevator. And at every level, and then we walked down on these expanded metal steps. And at every level, um, I'd walk over and look at this and fantastic machine, this shuttle, space shuttle. And I was so impressed. I'm a relatively patriotic person, but I, I was just proud to be a member of the species that could do such a, build such an enormous and wonderful machine. And I wanted to remain involved. Uh, so when I saw the sign that said Space Station Working Group, I started calling around at NASA this is early 80s, so it's uh, 1982 and three, 82, um, calling around at NASA to see if anybody had thought about small groups living and working in isolation and confinement. And people would say, oh, yeah, we really need to look into that. You need to talk to so-and-so. And so it went on for about six months of trying to find somebody who in a position of responsibility um, who might be interested in the study that I was um, contemplating. I finally found a guy, well, the last person was uh, a fellow at the Ames Research Center in California. 
And I had called several times and left messages and never got a response. And I was just about to give up on a Friday afternoon at four o'clock. I thought I'd call one more time. I called and the guy answered his own phone. And we chatted for an hour and a half or so. And um, he asked me, how, how would you, this is something we've been interested in. How would you go about it? And I explained that uh, in all fields of serious inquiry, we use metaphor when access to the real thing is not possible for practical reasons or ethical reasons. And um, medical researchers use what are called animal models to test therapies. Architects and engineers build physical models and then subject them to stresses. Economists build mathematical models to test hypotheses about pricing and supply. And in the behavioral sciences, we look to analogous conditions. And so I propose to study conditions on earth that are characterized in various ways by isolation and confinement and the conditions that we might reasonably expect of a low earth orbit space station. He asked, he said, well, why don't you just write me a letter about how you would do this? So that weekend I composed a five page letter and sent it to him. And a couple of weeks later, got a call uh, asking for my boss and me <laughs> to come to uh, Ames and talk about it. And we did and spent the day. And at the end of the day, they invited me to write a proposal, an unsolicited proposal um, that if they liked, they would fund. And if not, they would put it out to competitive bid and I'd have another shot at it. Uh, but they liked the proposal. And so I started on my first study of um, conditions analogous to uh, a low Earth orbit space station. And I studied off, uh, so I identified a dozen or so uh, saturation chambers for deep sea divers, uh, offshore oil platforms, super tankers, um, research vessels, Antarctic stations, Skylab, our previous space station, and uh, commercial fishing vessels even, I knew something about. Anyway, um, that study was a, was a big hit with engineers who were designing the International Space Station because the recommendations were derived from real world, world experience. Up to that time, it was um, essentially a psychologist good, good idea. Um, but having the recommendations, even though they were based on anecdotal evidence, at least it was real world evidence rather than just a good idea. Because that was such a hit, I was asked to do the same thing for a three-year expedition to Mars, a one-year lunar base tour and three-year expedition to Mars. And the only analogs that compared uh, in terms of the durations were uh, expeditions of the past, voyages of discovery. And, and so I started chronologically with Columbus's first voyage and then worked through the expedition literature, reading um, expedition journals and secondary accounts and um, extrapolating lessons learned uh, that might be relevant to uh, a long duration planetary expedition. And when I submitted the, the final report was titled, The Modern Explorer's Guide to Long Duration, Isolation and Confinement 
lessons learned from space analog experience. And the NASA contract monitor suggested that I uh, submit it to a publisher to get a wider, um, a wider readership. Um, and I sent it to the Naval Institute Press and they accepted it. I think the word is over the transom without a proposal or anything. And then I, for the next eight months or so, I worked with a manuscript editor to um, convert it from a tech report to a presentable uh, book. And they humored me all along. I thought the title was going to be The My Modern Explorer's Guide to <laughs> Kind of, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the... Anyway, uh, they humored me. And then at the last minute, uh, the technical editor said, you know, um, we've got to come up with a different title. And here you stay. I said something about how explorers' ideas or plans are often ridiculed. And, you know, these bold endeavors are often um, ridiculed for impracticality or something. And so she found that phrase in the, in the text and it became bold endeavors, lessons from polar and space exploration. I was no smarter after writing, after the book was published than before, but people sure take a, took me a lot more seriously after the book was published. So I recommend to anybody who thinks they have a book inside them that go ahead and spend the time and effort to do it because it, um, people will take you more seriously afterwards. But the book did, I, one time I was um, at a NASA meeting presenting a paper on, on a, an analog study that I had conducted at French remote duty stations. And I was asked to come out to, in the hallway, but by the uh, uh, medical division, um, there was someone who wanted to meet me and it was uh, Ellen Baker, the head of the astronaut office at the time. And she just wanted to thank me for bold endeavors and tell me that it's required reading among the astronauts who were preparing to go to the International Space Station. And I said, could you say that again? <laughs> I just, I just want to hear that again. And, um, and then I, I was invited to give a presentation to the astronaut office. Um, and after my, this was using 35 millimeter slides, by the way, to give you an idea. An idea. It might be my last slide presentation before PowerPoint, but 1999. And uh, after the presentation, people lined up to have me autograph their copy of Bold Endeavors. Um, I mean, astronauts asking me to autograph their copy of my book and giving me patches of from missions and things and. And then they took me around to, um, uh, we had meetings, you know, where they would, uh, they say, you know, we're thinking of having this, this uh, plan where we'll go camping in a wilderness and, and, uh, and we'll kind of test the team that way. What do you think of that? Or we're thinking of having a simulation that goes for two weeks and where, our, what do you think of that? And, and uh, I, leaving one of these meetings, uh, Al Holland, who was the, has been for years the head of the psychological support office. They provide the support to astronauts uh, on the ISS or previously uh, on Mir and to their families. And 
his comment was as we were leaving the the room you know we've been trying to get them to to uh, acknowledge these psychological issues for years and then you come along and suddenly it's a great idea you know but i've learned that that's a phenomenon that occurs everywhere uh claude bachelard the medical director of the french program french polar programs this told me that and uh des lug the medical director of the australian antarctic division you know they have great ideas but nobody in their management listens to it they have to get some because you know <laughs> anyway for various reasons uh no no person is a prophet in their own land so yeah, and I think, anyway, yeah. So yeah, I was just thinking, you know, until this year, I don't think as I think more people now understand what isolation does to us. I mm. I think, I mean, I, I you know, I spent the quarantine and I was in Turkey, and there would be these four day lockdowns. It doesn't sound like a long time, but after you know two or three of them, I started to realize that that it it was having a strange effect on me. It wasn't just I was down or or crabby it was just having these sort of it's almost like in chess is the only best way i can describe it it's almost like your feelings are kind of cornered <laughs> you know it's sort of this weird place that you're in where you don't really have a good outlet for for feeling things so i i wonder if now they would be more receptive to you know initially but by the end of march of last year i had been contacted by a dozen journalists from Europe um, asking me about my, the relevance of my research uh, to the, the enforced confinement in uh, homes and apartments uh, for families and roommate groups and working groups. And so I put together a three-page summary and anytime a journalist would, and then Americans eventually got on board with with interviews um, about this, but I, I had this prepared summary of the relevance of my research. You know, little things like um, eat at least one meal a day together as a group um, to help foster group solidarity. And, um, and then the list of things that you can do, you play, you mentioned chess, play chess with a, a friend remotely. Um, as astronauts have done, uh, but most important, to view the uh, the confinement as an opportunity rather than an obstacle or a penalty. Uh, you view it as an opportunity, as an astronaut does, as opposed to a penalty or an obstacle, as a prisoner does. And it changes everything to just make that one switch in your brain. Um, try to accomplish something every day. You don't have to get up at the crack of dawn, but do keep to a schedule and try to accomplish at least one. Anyway, I had a whole list of these things and um, European journalists were quick to pick up on that. Um, and uh, eventually the American journalists got around to it. There must be 30 articles that based on uh, not solely, but the, but interviews that I conducted. Some of them quite funny. I mean, there's a lot of talent out there, folks like you that um, 
can put together a, an entertaining and informative uh, session, podcasts and YouTube videos and, and uh, articles. I mean, even companies, there were a few that were uh, the information officers at uh, large European companies for internal consumption only, they wanted information. And so I was happy to help. So there, but you asked, your initial question was, how does a person get into space anthropology? Um, that's how I did it. I, much of my work has been for the military, uh, studying uh, military specialties like explosive ordnance disposal technician um, uh, or swimmer delivery vehicle pilot and navigator, um, communication specialist. I had been advised early on uh, that one needs to have three specialties to remain fully engaged in contract research. And so I did the military work, design work, um, the NASA work and traffic safety studies. I could, every law enforcement officer in the country who has been trained to detect impaired drivers on the road has been trained using materials that we developed um, based on quantitative massa, I mean, massa, I hate that word, uh, very large, very large scale field studies of driver behavior. A standardized field sobriety test battery, walk and turn, one leg stand, and horizontal gaze nystagmus. Um, I did the study that validated those um, in the field. But the NASA work is my favorite and also the the area that best uh, reflects my anthropological background, I think. I was asked once uh, by an engineer, how is it that you get along so well with, with astronauts and with, with, uh, with aviators in general? And, and because psychologists are uh, historically, I don't mean to say feared, but aviators and astronauts have always been um, apprehensive about psychologists because like flight surgeons, they can down select a person. They can keep a person from flight opportunities. And the fellow said, ah, I finally figured out why you get along so well with these people. You're an anthropologist, you're not a psychologist. So I think that has something to do with it. An anthropologist approaches every interview as a student or should at least. Um, even though the person might, you might know an awful lot about the subject you're investigating, um, one naturally approaches it as a student so that your subject matter expert, your informant uh, will open up and, and tell you things. I'm, in that first study I did for the Gruens on the, the marketability of a soil amendment product, interviewing golf course greenskeepers, I had no idea what a stressful job that is. But if you're working, especially for a, uh, a private country club where the, the members expect their greens to be perfect, they, the greenskeepers are under a lot of pressure. I mean, a little brown spot on a green and you could lose your job. And so they develop secret mixtures of soil amendments and fertilizers and 
um, and there's uh, industrial espionage to learn what the other golf course greenkeepers are doing and stuff. I mean, there was a lot, a lot there that was very much like doing an ethnographic study of the Puna of Borneo. So, wow, and I mean, the 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 dynamics are very interesting, both being in isolated and with a small group of people, and then being in space. Is it true, or, or I had read something that there weren't windows initially for the space station, or they were just portholes. There wasn't a lot of outdoor visibility, and that that changed because of the the psychological effects that that could have. Well, there was one window on the space station until the cupola was added. The Italian built cupola my first space station study before while the design process was still underway uh, i recommended a cupola uh, because in a underwater habitat project tektite the the crew members would spend every free moment with their head up in this cupola watching the fish and the surrounding the habitat this is in the saint john's virgin islands Everyone knew, I mean, I wasn't, I'm sure, the only person to recommend a, a cupola, but windows uh, it would be the focus of recreational time and also would be useful for Earth observation and photography. There was one window, I forgot how what the diameter was, but came about like that. And then the when the cupola was added, uh, that became the primary I mean, the favored spot on the International Space Station is pointing down at the, at the Earth. So you've seen images of it. It's, it's um, fantastic. You know, this large window, just being able to see so much around you outside could, could have a benefit psychologically. And it may be the engineers are thinking nuts and bolts. You know, they're thinking about functionality as opposed to, you know, how it will affect the, the the people who are actually going to be living there and 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 why you kind of need both angles right so you need the engineers to make something that's going to be habitable but you also need you know anthropologists and psychologists to be able to build a, a habitat where humans are going to be able to thrive you know not just survive in, in that in those conditions oh, well another recommendation was to private sleep chambers the soviet union had what was called a rail garrison basing system for their uh, ICBMs, which was uh, heavy duty trains, each one carrying missiles. Um, and the, the idea of doing it on trains is that the trains move and satellites can't see them. And so the US decided to do this as well. And I received a call from some Air Force guys who had been referred to me by NASA. They they said what and their question was would we have a problem if we can find 30 or so air force people to box cars for a month or two at a time and i said yes you, you almost certainly would have problems but there's ways of mitigating the the risk and the stress um and i sent them my first space station report and i thought maybe i was going to get some work out of it and another three years went by uh, and then I got a call saying, 
you know, we used a lot of your recommendations in the design of some rail cars that, uh, and we built a high fidelity mock-ups of what it's going to look like. We want to do a simulation. And would you come down to San Bernardino and, and uh, run the simulation for us? So, yeah. And some of the recommendations were, um, I had stressed the importance of eating together. And so they had four microwave ovens so that you could have, and then they had little booths like restaurant booths where people would eat. So you could have four people at a time and four people at a time. And uh, uh, well, that was really nice. But um, by the way, if you ever have four microwave ovens uh, going, uh, disable the, the alarm that tells you when it's done cooking because um, their, sleep, their sleeping quarters were just on the other side of a thin uh, curtain from a sliding curtain from where the galley was. And, and so people trying to sleep would be awakened by the beep, beep, beep. That's why a simulation helps uh, at the last step in the design process. Um, but they, the bunks, for example, were shared. It was your bunk for 12 hours, and then it was someone else's bunk for 12 hours, and then it was yours again. It's called hot bunking, and it is a, a, a practice that is universally despised uh, at every place it's used. And event, uh, when the International Space Station was, was built, there, there were no sleep, sleeping quarters. I had recommended sleeping quarters, of course. Um, but with only two or three astronauts and cosmonauts and several modules, uh, a person could just sling, sling uh, his or her sleeping bag in a module and you have plenty of privacy. And, uh, but eventually more modules were added and the crew size went back up to six uh, or up to six. And then they installed private sleep quarters in the Russian segment and also in the essentially the NASA administered section. They're the size of, uh, they're not large, don't need a lot of space, about the size of a telephone booth. And here's where I usually have to explain what a telephone booth is or was, uh, a little compartment with a phone in it on the street corner, used to have those all over, uh, but about 84 cubic feet, just a place where you can retreat from the constant, um, well, where you could have your own personal space. Most humans require uh, interpersonal interactions. We're social creatures. However, uh, if there's no opportunity to periodically withdraw from uh, close interpersonal contact, it becomes, it usually becomes very stressful. And it's for this reason that uh, from the you know, humblest fishing boat to the grandest super tanker, uh, members of the crew periodically uh, seek the solitude of the bow or the flying bridge or of a compartment below decks just to get away for a few moments from the constant uh, contact of, of other humans. The, a private sleep chamber is not really sufficient uh, it's necessary, but it's not really sufficient. There have to be other areas as well where you can prepare for a task quietly or 
uh, read without being interrupted. There are many other stressors of isolated and confined living, but um, and there are certain phenomena that occur that are just predictable. In isolation and confinement, whether it's in Antarctica, on a submarine, or on the International Space Station, trivial issues are exaggerated. Little things that would be inconsequential in normal life on Earth uh, get blown out of proportion. And this is, I mean, Herman Melville wrote about this in uh, White Jacket, uh, about how the how, how the events on board a sailing ship of the 19th century are, are acted out in, in greater drama than on land. Your entire world is shrunk down to the vessel that you're on or the capsule, I mean, the station that you're, you're on or the um, habitat and everything becomes uh, more intense. And people who've wintered over in Antarctica have told me that, you know, they'll, they'll blow up over some little disagreement with somebody about a fax machine or something. And then an hour later wonder, what the heck was that all about? Why did I react like that? But knowing that it's going to occur is very helpful in understanding your own behavior when it does occur. That's why it's important to prepare astronauts for this special condition. Uh, in 1999, I was asked to help um, prepare a, a training course for astronauts planning to go to the International Space Station, and which became fully occupied, I mean, permanently occupied one year later. And I, I had a module that I prepared on expedition leadership and getting along in isolation and confinement. Others did medical issues, and there was a fantastic um, module on um, intercultural relations and explaining certain aspects of Russian behavior and certain aspects of Japanese behavior that might be misunderstood if you didn't know about it. The woman, the cultural specialist, Russian cultural specialist, explained how in Russian culture, you have to suffer in order to achieve. And, you know, they admire America. This was 20 years ago, 21 years. They admire Americans, but they don't think we've suffered enough. I mentioned that we studied analogs on Earth as, a mo as models for uh, a low Earth orbit space station. Once we have a low Earth orbit space station, fully uh, permanently occupied beginning in the year 2000, um, we don't need to rely on the Earth-bound analogs as much because for future um, to understand what might be expected, what be required in future uh, interplanetary expeditions, we have the space station that can now serve as the analog for a mission to to Mars. So I propose to uh, conduct a systematic uh, analysis of the content of journals, private journals, that would be maintained by astronauts for this purpose in hopes of uh, identifying lessons that could be applied to the design of procedures and, and equipment habitats for interplanetary expedition. 
in the process, they, they said, well, how many subjects do you need? And, you know, of course, we'd like to have 100 subjects in order to have some statistical power, but uh, I didn't want them to laugh. Um, and I didn't want to overstay my welcome. And so I said, well, 10 subjects, some certain medical studies, medical research use only 10 subjects. And even 10 was considered a lot because that would take five years minimum with two person crews, um, two and three person crews, it would take a minimum of five years to get 10 subjects because it's sequential. We invited the cosmonauts at first, but, but they would say yes, and then they wouldn't do it. Uh, and it was finally, you know, a couple of years into the study when one of the translators stayed afterwards after an informed consent briefing to explain to me why no Russian is ever going to participate. <laughs> and it's because it was too dangerous for them. If anything ever came out that put them in a bad light or put the Russian program in a negative uh, light, you know, it would be over for them as a, as a cosmonaut. And it was such a good gig, they didn't want to jeopardize it and tell you the truth. I understood completely. Um, but the astronauts, um, you know, 10 astronauts uh, over the course of seven years, it took, uh, maintained journals during their six month tours on board the ISS. Some wrote every day, some wrote three times a week. Sometimes they would write only once a week during period, high tempo periods, like with lots of spacewalks extravehicular activity, um, it, the production would go down, but um, they all wrote candidly. I don't know that they wrote candidly all of the time, but all of them wrote things in their journals that they would not want attributed to them by their management. Um, and they were uh, very revealing. And I gave my presentation in 2010 and they, the astronaut office and the behavioral health and performance research office asked me to continue because things were happening that station was growing and they were going back, they were going to six person crews from two and three person crews and it would provide an opportunity for comparison of small, very small to medium sized groups. And so it, we started up again and it went through 2016. So 13 years from 2003 to 2016 uh, documents 10 person years of living and working in space. 10 astronauts in phase one with two and three person crews, and 10 astronauts as members of uh, six person crews. In the second phase, we could actually have two astronauts at a time because the crew size was bigger. That was very useful in identifying what the primary sources of stress are for on-orbit crew and the things that uh, help them adapt to the conditions. So I, I guess wrapping things up, you know, I, 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 my question is, does being in space change anything? In other words, if we have five people isolated in Antarctica versus orbiting Earth or on their way to Mars, does, is, does that dynamic does it change anything? Maybe claustrophobia or, you know, or is it, are we just humans everywhere we are really and, and the, the same things kind of pop up? I believe that the same problems that 
were confronted by explorers of the past will be confronted by the future explorers of space. Admiral Byrd uh, almost killed himself three different ways um, when he conducted a, an experiment 100 miles from his main base at Little America. They built a hut. And he didn't want to subject anyone else to that kind of uh, isolation and confinement, so he did it himself. And he lived there for, uh, it was supposed to be six months, didn't last that long because um, he had an electric generator, a gas powered generator outside the hut uh, that emitted noxious uh, carbon monoxide that filtered into his habitat. He almost died. Uh, his stove gave off fumes that almost killed him. At one point, he went outside in a blizzard and his door froze shut and he had trouble getting back in. Um, it was only because his Morse code transmissions to Little America became um, incoherent, kind of like the equivalent of slurred speech of Morse code, that they realized that he was in trouble and they yeah, three different uh, attempts to go rescue him. Finally, last one succeeded. On future expeditions to Mars, there will be, it won't be a gasoline powered generator, but there will be outgassing of some sort of equipment uh, that was unanticipated. Uh, there will be a, a dust storm that, that uh, destroys equipment that prevents certain tasks from being performed or puts the crew in jeopardy. They will suffer uh, from monotony and especially on the transit phases of the, of the expedition, just as the uh, uh, explorers of the past have done. The explorers, expeditions of the past though, inform us that humans can endure almost anything to be among the first to accomplish a goal. And that gives hope. The thing that I wanted to say early on in our conversation was that when I was doing that first analog study, I discovered documents from, written during the 1960s, uh, during the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs, studies of recreation on an expedition to Mars. I mean, more pages have been written about recreation during a, a Mars expedition than on any other topic I could find because it was assumed that a successful Apollo program would lead directly to planetary exploration. And everyone acknowledged that isolation and confinement was stressful. Um, and thousands of people were actively engaged in planning for lunar and uh, Mars exploration. That never happened. And so you were saying that we're in this period, this fluorescence of interest in, uh, in planetary exploration, but it was even greater back in the late, late 1960s and early 1970s. And it was really the events of 1968 that uh, put all of that on hold. It's a historical matter, but uh, you know, the Tet Offensive in uh, 1968, the uh, assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, uh, the 
social upheaval and Richard Nixon put the put the lid on it indefinitely. And so in a way, yeah, this is a, uh, a, a resurgence of interest and I'm hopeful that this will, that it will continue. Uh, but I don't, <laughs> uh, NASA is funded incrementally each year. And what you want, one really needs is a long-term uh, effort and uh, as was implemented to get us to the moon in, in a decade. The Mars study, when I was just finishing, when we were just finishing it up in 2019, um, I got a call from a mission planner at the Johnson Space Center because we had based ours, uh, our approach, our task, task analysis on certain assumptions, a opposition class profile where you spend six months getting to Mars, 18 months on the Martian surface, and then six months getting back. There's another way to get to Mars. There's only these two ways, really. You can spend nine months, nine or 10 months getting there, and then 40 days on the surface, and then nine or 10 months getting back. But essentially, there's, those are the two ways of getting to Mars, and there are launch opportunities every 26 months to do that. And so we based our assumptions on the, um, the design reference architecture number five, which was uh, this six month, 18 months, six months. And as I was finishing the report, uh, Steve Hoffman called and said, you know, I'm on this uh, working group and they're talking about using a less energetic form of propulsion uh, that would take a year to get to Mars. And then you spend 300 days on the surface and then a year to get back. And of course, that's the wrong way to do it. I mean, the, the greatest source of stress will be the confinement in the interplanetary ship and could do it for six months, but for 12 months. Um, and so I had to add a couple pages in the final, in the implications chapter of that technical report that addressed that with the hopes of disabusing the, the physicists who have no knowledge of human capabilities and limitations at all, no sensitivity. They just want to save the weight of the extra fuel, which lowers the cost and so forth. So in my opinion, we need to wait until we have the wherewithal to get there faster rather than slower. I've often used this metaphor, talking about metaphors. Imagine you and five of your friends get into a motorhome, windows are blacked out, and you drive around the country for six months. You've trained with those people for three years before you get into the motorhome. Um, so you know everything about them. You know all about their families. You know every joke they've ever told. You're painfully aware of their annoying mannerisms. And then you spend six months with them. And then you get to your destination and you do get to go outside. You get to live in a slightly larger habitat and you do get to go outside, but you have to wear a space suit when you go outside. And you're there for 18 months with those same people. And at the end of the 18 months, you have that six month trip to look forward to going home. 
Well, imagine that your motorhome is so old and clunky that it's going to take a year to get to your destination. Do you want to go? I mean, should you go? Why subject humans to that kind of, kind of risk? My point is you wait until you can do it right. And if you can't do it right, don't risk the humans because a catastrophe will put it on hold for decades. Yeah, you make a great point. And there's you know nothing stopping the, the technological innovation, I suppose, other than funding and will, and where we can make things faster. I'm sure that's not, you know, that's easier to do than to have, yeah, I mean, a year, six months is a long time. Yes. A year is, and you don't know, I mean, you, you think, oh, a year, I, I could do that. You know, I live with my family at home. I spend time with them. Mm-hmm. But it's very different, and I, I, I think I, I, I couldn't imagine it. I mean, I, I, I just imagine some sort of you know nightmare scenario, science fiction movie where people are at each other's throats or some something crazy like that. <laughs> well, that that is a possibility. It's not likely the crew for an expedition to Mars will be selected very carefully, also trained sensitized to the issues. When you can't get away from people, you have to learn to read the signs that a person exhibits that they want to be left alone periodically. So there's little, there's coping mechanisms that can, that can be trained and there are, there are behaviors that are brought to the selection process. So, and as I said, the expeditions of the past have demonstrated that humans can endure almost anything Friedrich Nansen and Halyamar Johansson spent nine months in a six by 10 foot hut made of stones and walrus hides on Franz Josef Island in the Arctic. Their entire world illuminated by the pale glow of a blubber lamp that splattered oil all over them. They had nothing, they had no change of clothes, they had no soap. They cleaned themselves by scraping the the blubber from their arms and then recycling it into their blubber lamps. They only left left their hut long enough to carve off a a chunk of walrus meat from their cache outside. Um, And when spring came, they burst from their hut and patched up their kayaks and paddled off and a month later stumbled upon a, a British expedition who had spent a very comfortable winter in a, in a log cabin. And then they made it uh, back to Norway. The day they set foot on uh, Norwegian soil, their ship, which they had left a year before, broke free from the ice on the other side of the world and they were reunited. And when they entered Christiana Harbor, Oslo Harbor now, uh, they were greeted as if they had just come back from another planet. I searched the microfilm records of newspapers from 1897, 1896. Newspapers of that era, by the way, the front pages were covered with axe murders and salacious stuff, just like now. But when you get back to the news, dispatches from Friedrich Nansen's expedition were as if they were on Mars. Uh, I I think... You know, exp- space exploration in particular for us has the similar effect that maybe it has on individuals where we, we can kind of look beyond that sort of the 
the minutia of the planet, which sounds a little bit ridiculous to say, but you know, when we can look ahead to more amazing things, I think it really puts, you know, things in perspective. I think it's very inspirational and hopeful. And I, I do hope, you know, that, that, that this trend continues, hopefully, uh, that there's there's more of a push on multiple fronts. So I guess, well, time I, to... you know, I don't mean to be pessimistic. I still have that sense of awe that I experienced on the on the gantry at the uh, Kennedy Space Center in 1982, standing next to this unbelievably beautiful and capable machine. Um, and being proud of the species, being a member of the species that could build such a thing. I am still inspired by, by that. I still feel that. But I'm a little more realistic about when it's going to happen. And I just think it needs, it. when it happens, it should be done well. Don't subject people to Spartan conditions, to the austerity of a, of a hut. Uh, do, it, do it the way we... We envision it beautiful and and uh, technically well done and habitable. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a a great way to a great message to to sort of end things on. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate your time. I I'm I'm fascinated with I mean just all all the work you've done, and um, it's it's been just really a pleasure speaking with you and and learning about the human condition in all these weird things like i who would have th- i mean who would have thought that a, a great ape would 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 be flying to the moon one day you know it, yeah. it's just so seems yeah. so ridiculous but here yeah. we are <laughs> here we are Senti- sort of sentient beings um anyway if you want to learn more about this the book um yeah. has chapters on all of those issues now this was written in 1996 republished in 2011 and I just reread it last week for the first time since I wrote it. And, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of good in, <laughs> in that. I was, I was pleasantly uh, surprised that it does provide a lot of information. I wish, you know, the current entrepreneurs who are planning uh, space exploration of their own I wish they would um, become informed about those behavioral issues too. Anyway, thank you, Anil, and uh, good good luck with your project. I hope the information was useful. If you have any other questions, just give a call or or an email, and I'll be happy to respond. Thank you very much. I'll I'll put links to the book, and I'll, I'll mention it in the intro uh, to the podcast, and send you the article and the links uh, when Please they're live. Do. Yes, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Stuster, for taking time out to talk to me. This was a fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed our conversation. For all of you who are still listening to the podcast, thank you for your time. And if you haven't, please do leave a five-star review for the Fox Nomad podcast wherever you're listening to the podcast. It really does help get the word out. Thank you very much. And for now, for now, until the next episode, I hope you have a great rest of your day.